On air, online, on digital radio and television and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. in about half our crop so far um, we've got about a quarter of it protected under the covers I'm just out here standing in it now it's all nice and dry which is excellent and yeah the last 25% that's just having to run the gambit Fruit growers on tenterhooks with the rain coming at peak picking time and a call to lift restrictions on the Pacific Island seasonal workers the palm visa scheme is growing tremendously quickly. So now is a good time to stop and uh, reassess how the program is running and how it can be improved. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour. I'm Fiona Breen. We'll also look at preventing snakes from making their home around yours. And have you seen the latest lamb ad? It's a winner. We'll have a chat about it. Perhaps you'd like to give us your opinion. Send me a text 0438 0438-922-936. Now the rain overnight has some farmers on tenterhooks with orchards full of fruit ready to pick. Cherries are still being harvested and apricots are just starting to be harvested on some farms. Jake Newnham and his family run Lodina Orchard in the Coal Valley in Tasmania's south. So we've had about an inch overnight. It's still raining here as we speak. Unfortunately, this has been on the forecast for about a week, so we've had about a week to prepare. In terms of cherries, we've picked everything we could in terms of ripeness. Um, we've got more rain covers up this year. We had a hectare last year. We've got two hectares up this year. So we've got more fruit, fruit protected. So we've done the best we could with this one. So it was a busy week then. You, you sort of looked at the forecast and realised, well, we've got to get these cherries in as much as we can. Yeah, that's exactly it. So we worked Saturday, Sunday, and we've brought in about half our crop so far. Um, we've got about a quarter of it protected under the covers. I'm just out here standing in it now. It's all nice and dry, which is excellent. And yeah, the last 25%, that's just having to run the gambit. Uh, probably the bigger concern is, or equally big concern is our apricots. We've got a heavy apricot crop this year that we haven't started. So no doubt there'll be some damage and some cracking in that, but oh, that's what happens. So where are the apricots at? Just, uh, we pick our apricots about four times, five times. We colour pick at the um, optimum maturity. We're just about to start our first pick. So if it wasn't raining today, we would be doing that today. So the, probably the first 20% of our of the fruit is ripe and ready to go. What does this rain do? So potentially it might crack a few of them. Hopefully it's not too much or? Yeah, hopefully it's not too much. I, experience says it won't be amazing the packouts we get from the apricots at the start won't be amazing but you know i'm not here to play the role of whinging farmer about the weather i'm it's a bit of an old cliche i'm a bit over that we'll do the best we can with the situation you know like rain happens we get we average 40 mil of rain 
every January here, so this is not unexpected. We will have some, some down packouts. We, we'll still get some good fruit into a box, though, and we'll do the best we can with it. Okay. How's the fruit been looking? Pretty good. Pretty good. I think the quality's pretty good this year. We've got a, a healthy crop of cherries and apricots. Both are all looking pretty good, so... Hopefully the market's strong and people want them. And you've had um, enough of a workforce to help get a lot of those cherries in? Yeah, we have. We have. We've got a harvest crew of about 30, so it's we're a fairly small orchard still in the grand scheme of things. But um, I've noticed the workforce has really come, come strong this year. So, yeah, the emails are full, the phones are ringing constantly of people looking for work here. So obviously the, the uh, travelling backpacker workforce is, is back. Fantastic. And where are your cherries heading off to? Are they local or interstate? Or Yeah, we sell quite a bit in Tasmania. We sell a lot in Sydney and Melbourne, and we do a little bit of export as well into Taiwan mostly, but, yeah, a bit a bit around Asia. And your apricots? Uh, we sell about a quarter of them here um, in Tasmania. A lot at our farm, uh, farm stall. Um, we, we sell quite a lot at the Hobart Market. We've got some retailers up the north of the state who buy quite a bit from us, and then the other seventy percent goes to Melbourne, Adelaide, and Sydney. They all sell a little bit. Well, cross fingers, uh, this rain doesn't affect them too much. Is there anything you can do today, for example, um, to to dry things out a bit? Yep, yeah, um, I can't really do much while it's raining. I think it's due to clear up in the afternoon, so I think we'll probably get a helicopter in in the afternoon to try and dry the trees off it seems to help or at least it it helps your um fundamental side of things to at least feel like you're doing something and we'll probably get a better assessment of the damage tomorrow that anything that's you know sitting wet this afternoon or there'll be extra moisture in the soil so stuff is anything that's going to crack will continue to crack probably over the next 24 hours so we'll have a good look after that okay but you won't actually start picking until it until the rain ceases or everything dries off or yeah exactly exactly but we'll hopefully be doing our first pick of apricots tomorrow morning but if we can't get them dry and they want to keep cracking or whatever maybe that'll be delayed by an extra day all right Jake well good luck with it uh, I hope it all dries out very soon no worries I do too I think it's supposed to it'll be fine we'll see how it goes <laughs> thanks for joining the country hour no worries thank you And that was Jake Newnham and he and his family run Lodina Orchard in the Coal Valley. This summer, have a safe one by learning your ABCs. A is for action plan. Having an action plan means you know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. B is for be safe. Be aware of the hazards you may face in the local area. C is for connect. Connect to abc.net.au slash emergency for the latest emergency information. During an emergency, listen to your local ABC radio station. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. It's the Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And uh, we've had a chat to a couple of other fruit growers around the place. They're all madly hoping to dry out their cherries if they haven't got uh, covers on them or and some other crops. So a few helicopters are out uh, helping dry the cherry, cherries and apricots today. Uh, good luck to anyone working out there in the rain on the farm. Uh, I hope your crops are, are going well. 
Now, the number of workers employed in Australia under the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme has quadrupled since 2020, with workers now making up about 10% of our agricultural workforce. The reputation of the scheme has been damaged in recent years by reports of exploitation of workers, and the Australian government is under pressure to reform it. One organisation is calling for major changes to how the program operates. Elsie Kennedy has the story. There are now 38,000 palm workers in Australia. It's been a rapid expansion in a couple of years, up from about 8,000 workers in 2020. For Pacific Island nations like Vanuatu, the 10,000 workers from that nation in Australia represent about 9% of the working age population of the country. So it's really important for Australia's reputation and for our relationship with our neighbours that those workers feel like they're well treated and respected when they're in our country. Over the last year, the federal government has overhauled the scheme, introducing a requirement for workers to be paid the minimum wage, receive a guaranteed weekly take-home pay of $200 and a guaranteed number of hours of work every week. In a new report, the Australia Institute says there is still more to be done. The Palm Visa scheme is growing tremendously quickly. So now is a good time to stop and uh, reassess how the program is running and how it can be improved. That's Dr Morgan Harrington, Research Manager at the Australia Institute. At the moment, Palm Visa holders must obtain written permission to leave their approved employer or to switch between their approved employers. This, coupled with problems ensuring the enforcement of minimum wages and the provision of enough working hours for Palm Visa holders to earn a decent wage, have led to reports of underpayment and of people on Palm Visas running away from their improved employer. If they had the right to change who they work for in a free labour market, this shouldn't be a problem. No domestic worker in Australia is subjected to these kinds of restrictions on movement, which fly in the face of the notion of a free labour market. People invited to work in Australia on a temporary basis should have the same rights as other workers. Some employers might argue that they put out money to, for flights, for example, to bring workers into Australia. If that worker then goes down, the, they find a job at a farm down the road, uh, they're going to lose money at that point. How could you set up the system so that employers wouldn't be losing out if, if a worker uh, changed jobs? Well, it's really important that this scheme is win-win, especially because it's growing so quickly. Under similar temporary labour migration schemes in Canada and the United States, employers and governments are responsible for the cost of flights, not the employee. Right. And so you're proposing essentially that employers pay for, for the flights and accommodation without the expectation of recouping that, that money? Yes, that is what our report calls for. And uh, we see that as an investment in the labour force if it is necessary to bring over such large numbers of temporary workers to Australia. The Australia Institute is also calling for a cap on the amount of money that can be taken out of a worker's pay each week to pay back things like accommodation and transport. Our report calls for deductions for accommodation in particular to be capped at 30% of monthly income. Uh, We also uh, suggest that that workers should not have to repay upfront visa costs and that 
all workers uh, on these temporary migration schemes should have access to Medicare. It isn't just the Australia Institute talking about palm workers being able to change employer and bringing down the cost of deductions. These issues have also been raised by palm workers themselves. In November, the Australian National University released the results of a survey of 2,000 palm workers. It found between a quarter and a half of workers, depending on which country they came from, would prefer to work for a different employer. And more than 50% of workers believe the deductions taken out of their pay to cover flights, accommodation and transport were excessive. Vanuatu Labor Department Labor Attaché Peter Foliaki Lokatui is the go-to person for more than 10,000 workers from Vanuatu in Australia. He says he believes a lot of workers do not properly understand the contracts they sign before arriving in Australia. And a lot more work needs to be done clarifying those contracts to avoid conflicts. To me, it all comes down to, um, you know, maybe maybe in terms of not, not understanding what the deductions are or it's not stated in, in the payslip. And, and going with the assumption that someone's taking money that's not accountable. And look, we've seen that happen. And I guess I can, I'll share an, an opinion that, that, you know, it's not representative of my government or anyone. It's just my observation. You know, we speak to the workers and how many of you actually understand the contract? And let's say 10% of people put their hands up. So that leaves the majority um, not in that space. Peter says if the Palm Scheme is done right, it is a big opportunity for Vanuatu workers. I look at Palm as, as one opportunity for someone who's, who's illiterate, who's finished school in grade three, who's never had this, this, this chance to, you know, uh, or even, even the young person who's spent so much years in school just to go back, you know, return back to Vanuatu and, and become, uh, you know, unemployed. This is an opportunity for us to, to you know, build uh, and, and, and become investors. You know, this one, one of the, the things now that we are, we are saying is go I know, go to Australia or go to New Zealand as a worker, return as an investor. How wonderful is that? That means we can equip the local, um, you know, uh, community uh, to build up capacity so that we can, you know, strengthen, uh, you know, ourselves so that we can grow, grow, you know, grow ourselves to the point where we can be self-sufficient. And that was Vanuatu Labor Department Labor Attaché Peter Falaki ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. Now, we spoke a little bit earlier about rain overnight uh, affecting some, possibly affecting some uh, apricots in the Coal Valley. And uh, I know Lodina cherries, they worked really hard over the week, past week, to get most, as many of those cherries in as they could. And now we've got Tim Reed on the line from Reed Fruits. Hi, Tim, how are you going? Hello, Fiona. How are you? Good. Now, I imagine you've also had a very busy week. Well, the forecast uh, is, has been very accurate. We, you know, we, in terms of the fact we're going to get some rain, uh, earlier on they were talking about massive amount of rain, but as the week progressed the last few days, the, the forecast backed off a bit. And fortunately, we haven't had as much rain as was first forecast. But in preparation for that, like other growers, we, we got in with a big crew of people and picked a lot of cherries uh, that were as near to ripe as we could get and um, in fact we smashed our own record in terms of the amount of fruit picked per day on on the farms so um, wow. um, yeah we've got we've got a lot of fruit in the packing shed now and the, and the, and the packing shed's about a day and a half behind the picking so uh, whilst we're not picking today there's plenty of fruit to keep the packing shed going so that's good do you recall this question without notice do you recall what your daily record is or what you what one oh, of the big look, picks is 
Yeah, I think we've picked over 80 tonnes per day on the farm at Plenty in the past a few times, but uh, we got up to 105 tonnes. Wow. 105 tonnes one day, but I think we averaged just under 100 tonnes per day over a five-day period, so we picked 500 tonnes of fruit uh, in 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 almost in in um, in five days, which was a, a, a horrific effort. And um, you can imagine just picking little cherries one by one. How many you got to get to get a ton? Wow! Yeah, alone, how many little, people? I mean, that would have been uh, an enormous yeah, we amount. We had uh, up to about 450 people picking on some days and, you know, just under 400 on others. So, uh, But on top of that, you've got all the people that actually collect the cherries from the orchard and bring them in to the hydro cooler and get them loaded into refrigerated trucks to come to the to down to the pack house. It's, um, so there would have been sort of 500 people around. Um, wow most days on the farm up there. Well, some people we a, would have earned some pretty good money. Yeah, oh, there were, you know, we, we, we're paying good money. The, the pickers, the picker, we had one picker picked 70 of our lugs one day, a little Korean girl. She's just absolute champion. She's getting $11.20 a lug and picks 70 in wow. a day. And we've got <laughs> other reg, regular pickers who pick 50 and 60. So a lug day, is, remind us what a lug is. Uh, well, our lugs uh, hold eight kilos, a bit over eight kilos. So, uh, so you know, that's a, they're like a core flute square or rectangular yes. shaped bucket and they hang on a hang on a harness that they have over their shoulders and, and carry them in front of them. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 I think the average picker up there last last week, I don't know about this big week, I think it'll be bigger this week, but last week the average picker earned about 250 something dollars per day and so that takes into account a lot of inexperienced pickers. Yes. Um, so, you know, there's a wide range, but, you know, everybody gets paid the minimum wage even if they don't reach the minimum wage. We have to top them up nowadays, but we're finding... It's only a few beginners that don't do that, and it usually only lasts for a few days until they get the hang of it. And then um, they can earn more if they pick fast. Oh, absolutely! They get paid. They get paid by the by piecework, by the by the lug, as we call them. And then um, then if they don't make a wage in any day, then we 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 have to make it up. But as I said, we haven't had to make too many up. The fruit's been fantastic. We've oh, had good. large fruit and uh, quite a good crop. Uh, not overloaded, so the size has been terrific. Um, we've got one one package down here, a black box. We call our signature collection box, and we only pack 34-plus cherries. That's 34 millimetres and larger, 34s and 36s uh, into that box, and we've, we've just about run out of stock of them. We're getting a lot of big cherries Wow! Uh, in the last... You know, this this year has been been terrific. So, uh, and the bigger thing, biggest thing is for the export market, the fruit's been very firm. So we we use a measurement called Durafel, which is a penetration machine. You press into the fruit, depending on how much pressure it takes to uh, press, you know, break the skin of the fruit. So, um, you know, we we've been running at Durafel levels of around 75 Durafel minimum. Um, up to 90 and sort of the, the 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 minimum that we would ever send is about 70 so that you know we're getting very very good response from the market uh, about the quality of the fruit so Tim, very Tim, pleased. Reed. Tim Reed that's fantastic have you 
uh, had to leave some fruit on the on the trees and sort of see what happens with this rain? Uh, well, what we've done is, um, as I said, we've picked everything that we could that was mature enough to pick. You know, if you run up on them too far, the cherries haven't got the flavour and they're still bright red colour, they're not dark enough, and so you can only go so far. And we've pretty much done that on all our farms and um, uh, in the Huon and and, um, and up in the Derwent Valley. Uh, the property up uh, up in the higher country, up in the Midlands, is not ready yet. We've, we've only just started picking up there today inside the, the big uh, hothouse we've got there, retractable roof greenhouse. Uh, picking a few cordia cherries there today for the first time that are ready, but they're indoors. So, yeah, but the cherries outside, we've, we've been looking at them this morning and after the helicopters have dried the trees off um, and pushed all the water off the fruit and down to the ground, um, then we go around and inspect them. You know, there's a couple of places where we could find, you know, three or four percent damage, uh, but... Uh, you can hardly count it. It's just tiny little cracks that are hardly visible. You can see them just appeared, you know, overnight where the cherries have been lying wet all night. But now the water's off them, that'll stop, but we won't get any more of that. And uh, so just tomorrow we're taking taking the day off today on all our farms to get the cherries dried. We'll be picking down the Huon again tomorrow. We only had three millimetres of rain down at Castleforks Bay and ten millimetres or 12 millimetres at Lucaston. Up in the up in uh, the Derwent Valley, we've had about 18 mils, and so we're taking a, an extra day off just to let the wind blow through the trees, hopefully, and, you know, dry them out and make sure the fruit doesn't get soft. Okay. So um, we want firm fruit. But, you know, I've got to say, I'm in absolute sympathy with a lot of our our fellow cherry growers interstate have been absolutely smashed this year. They've just yes. had a terrible, terrible time. And, um, you know, the market's been undersupplied with good quality fruit here in Australia. So the prices of cherries in the markets domestically have been quite good. Um, and we're still exporting a lot of cherries as well. So, so far, so good. Um, yes. Yeah, so All right. fingers crossed. Yeah. Tim Reed, thank you so much for, for taking the call for the Country Hour. Great to chat with you and good luck. Uh, I hope uh, the rain holds off a bit. Thanks, Fiona. Thank you. Bye. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour. You're with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Once a thriving hydropower camp of 3,000 residents, Poatina in the state's central highlands has transformed dramatically over the decades. Aside from being considerably smaller these days, it's run as an intentional Christian community after being bought by the Christian organisation Fusion in the mid-90s. Another change on the cards for Poatina are the two grid-connected batteries proposed for the Palmerston substation. The town's residents are backing the batteries, with religion playing a key role behind their support. On the footsteps of the dramatic Western Tears on the road leading into the small community of Poatina, the chairman of the town's body corporate, John West, shows me the lay of the land. We're actually looking east at the moment, across the Esk Valley to Ben Lomond uh, and just beyond Ben Lomond, the east coast. Um, but we're standing in, in a position right under the power lines that come from the Poatina power station, which is only just four kilometres to the west. Those power lines, which you can hear buzzing away, join up with the Palmerston substation. 
the site of two proposed giant grid-connected batteries. If built, the batteries will store and release 240 megawatt of electricity, reconnecting the town with its energy roots as a major hub for Taz Hydro. At its peak, we understand there were nearly 3,000 people living in Poatina, um, singles, families. And then in the mid-90s, um, Hydro sold the property and an organisation called Fusion Australia purchased Poatina. The town is now an intentional Christian community of just over 100 people. Poatina is, uh, was purchased by Fusion Australia, which is a Christian organisation. At the heart is, is the values uh, that Jesus taught us, yes. The two batteries have been proposed by American-owned Acacia Energy and French energy multinational Neoen. Residents of the community, including 83-year-old Annette Scarwin, see the batteries as important in transitioning to clean energy. I'm very glad to see um, major green developments because it's clear that our planet needs them urgently. Anne's faith plays a significant role in driving this support. My faith means that I don't despair. I do have hope um, and I believe that things are not out of control but... At the same time, I do think that as human beings we have a responsibility to act um, in the interests of everybody and of the and of this you know beautiful place that we've been given um, so that they can thrive. Alan Evans has lived in Poetina for the last year and has turned to religion to reconcile the love of nature with ongoing environmental damage. I'm a believer, and I read, read the Bible every day. There's a book in it called the Book of Revelations, which in my own lived experience is reflected in what I'm seeing unfolding in the world. And so that gives me, uh, I guess, another angle that, that I view it all from. Her faith provides her with hope that more environmentally friendly projects can be adopted. Every individual has the ability to look within and find their own integrity, their kernel of truth, um, and to live their lives in accordance with that. And to get back to the the power scheme, the battery scheme, um, to me that that is one way of expressing that integrity in the world. For grandfather and former Sydney cider Steve Hamilton, the batteries form an important part of his wishes for the planet. We're not here just to use the place up. Uh, we're here to, to be good stewards. Um, so that includes the, the way we use energy, the way we use uh, the environment, um, and certainly our uh, understanding of um, the creation is that uh, it's here to be valued and, and worked with, not... Uh, used up. Meanwhile in Poatina, all eyes are set to the future. Here's chair of their body corporate, John West. It would be an advantage to us. We would also want to welcome people who want to come and have a look at the progress, come and have a look at what the batteries look like from a distance and that brings people to Poatina. We're always looking for people to come to Poatina. And that was the Poetina Body Corporate Chair, John West, speaking with the ABC's Evan Wallace. And the two batteries are still waiting on final approval from TAS Networks. And if given the green light, construction could start as early as the second half 
of the year. Time for the news headlines now with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Fiona. An emergency evacuation notice has been issued for parts of the town of Seymour, north of Melbourne. Major flooding is expected in the Seymour area, slightly higher than the 1993 flood level. Meanwhile, more than 70 flights in Melbourne have been grounded by the severe weather. Melbourne Airport says while operational issues were affecting some flights, weather was the cause of most of the cancellations. Local media in Bangladesh say Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has won an overwhelming majority in the country's parliamentary election. The Election Commission is yet to announce official results, but local TV stations are reporting she's been given her fourth consecutive term in office. Ms Hasina's party faced almost no competition after the main opposition boycotted the election. They've accused the government of rigging the vote. And former Matilda Melissa Barbieri says it's too early to say whether Sam Kerr's knee injury will definitely force her to miss the Olympics in Paris. Kerr ruptured her ACL while on a training camp with her English team Chelsea in Morocco. The condition could see her out of action for at least nine months. A full bulletin of ABC News at one o'clock. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Time to check the weather forecast now. Good afternoon, Michael Conway. Hi, Fiona. Now, I know there's been quite a bit of rain around the place. Have we had some big totals overnight? We've had, yeah, some moderately big totals. We've had in the west, Mountain Reed had 52 millimetres of rain. Crater Valley, 46, and Marawa had um, 42 millimetres. And statewide, there was... um, 25 to 50 millimetres was through, was through a wide band from the uh, central north down to the plateau to the east coast uh, and, and then out to the west up into the northwest. So quite a bit of rain about uh, yesterday. Well, good news for farmers. Tell us uh, about the outlook now. Yeah, sure. So the rain band is still ongoing. It is still raining pretty light. Um, mostly light around the northeast. Uh, that should that should contract further during the afternoon, just gradually contracting up to the to, to Flinders Island. And after that, uh, in the next week, there's very little to talk about in terms of rainfall. Wednesday, we get a, a little cold front coming through, and they'll have a few showers about the west, maybe around um, the southeast with a bit of a sprinkle, but uh, not much not much in it. And then the next chance is Saturday. But apart from that, uh, Saturday with some light showers about stay with another cold front but apart from that very little rainfall about Tasmania. All right uh, any warnings at all? Yes we have a strong wind warning today for all coastal waters. Tomorrow it contracts to the east so from the northern tip of Flinders Island to Tasman Island including Bank Strait and Franklin Sound we have a strong wind warning. Uh, what about coastal waters and swell? Sure. The swells about today uh, in the western south is a southwesterly at one and a half to two and a half metres. Tomorrow it's a southwesterly around two metres, although reaching up to three metres in the south in the morning. In the north, both days, the northeasterly at around one metre. And in the east, today we have a northeasterly at one to two metres, also southerly up to a metre, although southwesterly one to two metres offshore in the south. Tomorrow in the east is a southerly swell at one and a half to two and a half metres. Um, there's also a northeasterly swell of up to one one metre. The winds about we have today is uh, south to southeasterly at 15 to 25 knots, uh, and then increasing to 20 to 30 knots about the west and east during uh, 
at around this time um, in the day. Tomorrow there's a south to southeasterly at 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots in the east in the early morning. Winds turn northeast to northwesterly at 10 to 20 knots in the west in the afternoon and extend and become more like west to northwesterly, extend throughout the whole of the state uh, in the evening. Uh, yep. Fantastic. Michael Conway, thanks very much. Cheers, Fiona. Let's go! Back in 2024. We packed it properly. Rick Goddard for breakfast. I'm really excited coming back. Breakfast with Rick. Get amongst it. Rick Goddard. Five days from 5.30. Our tricky question of the week. Let's go! It showcases the real artistic talents. Rick Goddard. Back for five in 2024. The most extravagant breakfast I ever had. Now you're talking. Rick Goddard. Back from January the 22nd on ABC Radio Hobart. With Fiona Breen. Now, many rural communities are struggling with access to veterinary services. It's the subject of a parliamentary inquiry in New South Wales, which has heard about the challenges of recruiting vets to regional areas and keeping them, where many are overworked and burnt out. But as Emily Doak reports, there are some success stories of vets who've swapped city life to treat animals in the bush. At a farm in southern New South Wales, veterinarian Michelle Noga is peering intently into a horse's mouth, taking note of its teeth. And your canines have been worn down. Vets are in short supply here, especially those with specialist skills like equine dentistry, and Michelle can travel thousands of kilometres a week to and from her home base of Griffith. But it's not just horses she's treating. Every day is different. So I could work with alpaca yesterday, um, a chicken the day before, horses today, it could be the zoo tomorrow. You never get bored, you're always learning. And the lack of being able to, I guess, refer easily like in the cities means you're doing a lot more for people and their animals than you do in the city. In looking at the work that you do, what do you enjoy most about it? At the people side. So I've got some really lovely regular clients. I've got clients who are in their 70s and 80s who will have a towel on the table, a cup of coffee and tea. They remember how I like it. Um, It's just the relationships you build is really different. Growing up in Sydney, Michelle always wanted to work as a vet and was lured to the region by love. I've always wanted to work regionally. Um, I had planned to go in northern New South Wales, but actually met my now husband in my final year. So he's a farmer in Griffith and it was a no-brainer just to move and be part of this community. She says working in the bush has many advantages to practising in the city. I think you learn a lot more. I've got friends who graduated from university, went to a city clinic and they still hadn't done a desexing in a year or they hadn't done a caesarean. Um, Whereas in the country you get thrown in the deep end straight up, you learn skills that you don't learn in the city. Gunshot wounds for example, you never get to see snake bites, that sort of thing, things that I guess day to day in-country practice that you don't get to manage in the city. I think their skills are better developed and quicker. Another city-born vet, Sophia Johnson, wanted to work with livestock and moved to the small town of Deniloquin during the pandemic. For better or worse, COVID, I think, really taught a lot of people how to stay connected, um, especially in the virtual age. So for me, yes, I was moving to somewhere rural, but, you know, gosh, I don't miss that traffic. I don't miss the cost of living. For me, it's been a really smooth transition. These two are in a minority. The Australian Veterinary Association says more than 60% of vets registered in New South Wales work in the city, 
30% in inner regional areas and just 8% in rural and remote areas. A New South Wales parliamentary inquiry is examining the workforce shortage and its chairman, Mark Benassiak, says recruiting vets to the country is a key issue. The less vets are out there, the more pressure it places on those vets that are, are there already. The tyranny of distance and the, the amount of travel that they had to do to get across, I guess, their, their range places extra pressure on them, which then obviously increases the risk of burnout for those existing veterinarians that we do have. He says opportunities to entice veterinary graduates to practice in rural areas are being explored. I think one of the big things that's come through quite strongly is the need for hex relief and some sort of incentive uh, where if you do some time out in, in rural and regional New South Wales that you do get a, a certain percentage uh, deducted from from your hex. APM Animal Health is a major provider of veterinary services in regional Australia, with 78 clinics across five states and employing more than 330 vets. Managing Director Chris Richards says the business has had to adapt to offer new graduates the career development and lifestyle available in the city. Particularly uh, younger vets are very focused on not being burnt out, have a high focus on ensuring they have a good work-life balance. You know, that also involves our, you know, our flexible workplace programs where we currently have over 80% of our vets on such a program where they're working four-day weeks or um, nine-day fortnights. New South Wales Farmers Association is calling for greater partnerships between government and private vets in rural areas to make practices more sustainable. Association member and vet Robin Alders says it will also be important in managing animal disease outbreaks. It is certainly nationally recognised that um, if there's an emergency response and they have to have a surge in workforce that there will be contracts issued to private vets. But we'd like to suggest that this be an ongoing situation so that the, the private practitioners know that they've got a contract, they'll have a certain income each year. In terms of recruitment, she believes there should be more support for farm kids to be able to get into veterinary courses. I think the short term may well be looking at special entrance requirements to allow students from rural areas that are clearly extremely intelligent and that did reasonably well in their ATAR but demonstrate that commitment to coming back to rural areas, maybe setting aside a couple of places for them each year. Back in southern New South Wales, Sophia Johnson has this message for vets about working in the regions. There's so much that can be done these days in our country towns and some of these vet clinics are even better equipped than most city clinics. I do think as well that people think that the country is the sticks and if you're not used to it then I think that there's this really big um, potentially misconception that you know country towns are potentially a bit backward or poorly resourced or you know not able to get that quality of life and it's not true I mean we've got the internet these days we've got really good you know connectivity with our peers in other um, cities and towns it's really not the same transition it was probably even 10 years ago uh, so I think Give it a go. You know, what's the worst that can happen? You get that experience and you've got some stories to tell at the pub, maybe. And that was Sophia Johnson, a vet from southern New South Wales, ending that report from Emily Doak. Now, prevention is key. That's the advice of one snake catcher uh, has given to stop the reptiles from entering people's backyard and even their house this summer. But what are the tips and tricks you can implement to deter snakes from your home? Keeping yourself, children and animals safe. Lucy Cooper reports. Snakes are an important part of Australia's ecosystem. They serve as a natural pest control service 
and they help us with their venom because it's used in medicine. But sometimes snakes get a little too close to home, potentially threatening your loved ones and furry friends. Shanna Wan, the CEO and founder of bush charity Sober in the Country, lives on a property in Moles Creek, northwest New South Wales, a region she said is snake infested 24-7. So a couple of days ago, my husband very calmly said to me from outside, Shan, can you come grab the dogs? And I thought, well, that's unusual. And I went, sure. I sort of yelled <laughs> from inside and eventually I sort of poked on out there and um, he had hold of my Jack Russell and he was very um, cautiously looking around and I said, uh-oh. And he said, yeah, no, there's a red belly, red belly black snake. And it had um, come under our fence and it was lurking around our pool. I suggest it would be, would have been looking for water. Yeah, so, you know, we basically just had a situation with a snake um, and a couple of young dogs and in a confined sort of area, which, yeah, it's always a really uncomfortable, yucky feeling. Not last summer, but the summer before, I also had a properly horrifying experience where I was swimming my blue healer uh, in a dam and it was just a clear day, nothing much was going on, happily throwing a, um, a uh, ball for my dog and next minute I noticed what I thought was a big stick in the dam and it wasn't a stick, it was a, it was a big eastern brown and it had come out of absolutely nowhere specifically to head into the dam to go for my dog. The run-in with the red-bellied black snake just this week prompted Shanna to reach out on social media, asking for help to deter snakes on her property. There were some really interesting ones that I'd not heard of before, such as planting a certain species of geranium. Apparently, snakes have a very um, delicate sense of smell and they just really dislike this particular geranium plant. Um, and I was like, wow, never heard that before. So I'll investigate that. <laughs> Um, there were suggestions that were very common sense ones that I think lots of people are aware of, such as, you know, remove obvious sources of water or put your dog water bowls inside if you can because they're seeking water naturally, especially if there's no other water source nearby. Remove frogs if you can, although I've got to tell you, I've got no idea how a human goes about removing frogs. Um, what else did they suggest? Um, oh, the... The solar repellents that you place around the border of your property was a suggestion. Apparently they emit like a, a hum or a frequency, which ditto the snakes don't particularly like. Um, yeah, I'd like to live in harmony with them, but preferably if I can keep them on the other side of the fence, that would be better. Tips and tricks for Shanna came from far and wide with other advice, including introducing animals like guinea fowl or goannas and even chickens placing plastic netting on the ground and putting mothballs out because snakes don't like the smell. Townsville-based snake catcher James Bindoff said snakes will venture out of bushland and into homes because we provide them with something they want. Generally, the search of food and water um, is what drives them sort of into like your residential properties as well as industrial properties. But you will find that a lot more of the time that you're pulling them out of properties is if they've got unmanaged gardens, their next door neighbours got chickens and they've got rats everywhere because of the chicken food being left out. Like you'll find that a lot of the reason they come into suburbia is because of what we have as pets being like guinea pigs are quite popular up here. So those sort of things bring in larger carpet pythons, same with chickens and, you know, all that sort of stuff. His best advice to stay away from snakes? 
prevention is key. Any product that you buy, being like a snake repeller spray or those vibrating um, solar snake repellers, none of that sort of stuff works. What works is keeping your lawn short, your gardens neat and tidy. Um, all your bushes and stuff should be about a metre up off the ground. Why don't snake repellents work? Mr Bindoff said they do the opposite of their intended effect. The way that they actually work is that they make a sound and then they vibrate. So if you're a snake that works off vibration over hearing, you're going to hear like a high pitch vibration, which is that beep, and then you're going to hear the ground vibrating. So to them, that says that there's an injured animal that potentially could be food. So what happens if preventative measures don't work? And a snake does, in fact, end up in your backyard or home. Take a photo um, and call a snake catcher. There's not a lot you can really do, and there's nothing that we recommend that you do other than take a photo and keep a very good close eye on it so that when we do get there, um, we can easily relocate it. We're not spending 45 minutes to an hour trying to look through a backyard. When we've been called and then the backyard's been shut up and they've watched television for the 20 minutes it's taken us to drive there, that's our biggest sort of issue we have is people not keeping an eye on it and watching them closely till we get there. North Queensland-based snake catcher James Bindop ending that story from Lucy Cooper. Now, driving along the Midland Highway through Campbelltown, you may do a double take at a nice creamery that opens its doors during the summer months. Opening an ice cream establishment in central Tasmania may seem like risky business. However, the locals have embraced the store and the unique locally sourced ingredients on offer, including the Ashgrove milk and cream base. They churn daily. Rebecca Rinwood and her partner Fausto Langilu opened the Faber open Faber two years ago and hope to expand into other regional towns. Claire Burberry spoke to Rebecca and bumped into some local school students, Marnie and Aggie Lynn, to see what they think of having the ice creamery in their hometown. It's been just so lovely to have so much support behind us. Um, we get lots of regulars. It's just lovely. We get to know their orders. Um, lots of the same faces coming in. And when did you first open up? Um, it was January 22. Yeah, so this is coming into our third season here. Beck, Campbelltown is not exactly a beachside destination. Why did you open up here? Well, we, this was just initially to test the waters. Um, we're from around here, my business partner Fausto and I. So, and it's such a good middle point between Hobart and Launceston. So we get so much passing traffic and trade. So yeah, it just seemed like a good spot to start. Do you get a lot of school kids popping in after school? We do. And um, the locals call it Farber Fridays. So, yeah, we, we get an influx after three. It's very loud. The tourists that come through, do you hear where they're coming from and where they're going? Um, it, yes, we do. When I have time to have a chat, they tell me where they're from. We had a busload of people from Singapore doing a golf tour on the weekend, so that was lovely. They were loving Tassie. Beck, how important are locally owned food establishments to regional communities, do you think? Well, I think they're really important. 
um, especially being so out of the like the main cities and those sorts of things. Um, to get something that's good quality at your doorstep is just pretty pretty great. Well, the ingredients that go into these ice creams, do you get many of the ingredients locally? We do. Um, I grow the raspberries and rhubarb in our raspberry and rhubarb ripple flavour, um, the fresh mints from my garden, but also there's a market garden just down the road, Solomon's Store. We use their marion berries and blackberries. Um, yeah, so everything's made from scratch, so we don't use any uh, anything artificial, um, no colours or flavourings. Yeah, so it's just all from scratch, just a really small batch. All made here? All made here, yep. And what about the milk base? Where do you source the milk from? Our milk is from Ashgrove and cream. Beck, how do you come up with all these really interesting flavours? We've got Christmas pudding, raspberry and rhubarb swirled, choc mint, yellow nectarine sorbetto. How do you come up with these ideas? Well, it's just a little bit of trial and error, I suppose. Um, we get lots of requests, so I try to fulfil those. Um, but, I don't know, it's just flavour combos that work. You can't go wrong. You're open over summer. What do you do for the rest of the year? Uh, I work at the local school, actually. Yeah, so that keeps me busy through the winter cooler months. You said that this establishment was a test run. Test run for what? Well, I I don't know. I guess I'd like to, to extend the business and go to Launceston or Hobart or keep the farber going. On a good day, how many ice creams would you sell? Well, we've been known to sell out, so we've got 14 flavours, um, so I'd probably sell about four or 500 on a good day. And are you constantly making the ice cream in the background every night? Or how does it work? We churn every morning, yeah, so it's all just... I only make what we can sell in a day, so it's usually made every day. So you make fresh every day? And what are your most popular flavours? I would have to say our most popular is um, our honeycomb and milk chocolate ganache. So we make the honeys from um, my business partner's dad's hive. Yeah, I think it's just, we just sell so much of that. Is the Christmas pudding a new flavour or did you have that last Christmas? We have that every Christmas, yeah. So we sell a lot of that as well. Right, I'm going to ask the girls a couple of questions. We've got Marnie Lyon here. Marnie, what's your favourite ice cream flavour? Um, the honeycomb milk ganache. And why is that? I mostly like the honeycomb in it. Do you think it's quite cool that the honeycomb was made by Beck using her business partner's father's honeybees? Yeah. How important do you think this, um, the gelateria is for Campbelltown? Pretty important. Why is that? All the kids can come here after school. What's your favourite flavour, Aggie? My favourite flavours are chocolate mint and stracciatella. And why is that your favourite? Um, I like the chocolate chunks and mint's always been my favourite. And that was Claire Burberry with that report and you just heard Marnie and Aggie Lynn there. Now this year's satirical Australian Lamb ad was released overnight and it's all about the generational gap. Produced by industry marketing bodies, Australian Lamb and Meat and Livestock Australia. No matter what generation you come from, baby, boomer, Gen X, millennial or Gen Z, everyone is made fun of. Annie Brown reports. 
Good morning, Bloomertown. It's a beautiful day to be 60 to 78 years young. With a new year brings a new ad from Australian Lamb and Meat and Livestock Australia. Known for its satire, this year the ad is targeting the different generations across Australia. Slay! I just feel like no one pays attention to Gen X. We've got so much to... I don't care what they do, just not in my backyard! Hey! Hey, my backyard! This is their fault! Don't look at us, we're literally perfect. Typical young people, everyone gets a trophy! We were kids! You bought us! Trophy! Stop gaslighting us! That's not what that means! Cancel! Cancel! Is that lamb? Lamb. You know, when I was a kid, we'd have lamb egg. Lamb barbecue? Lit. <laughs> well, at least we can agree on something. Generation gap! It's closing! Domestic market manager at MLA, Graham Yardy, says the generations have more in common than what we all think. I guess looking at some of the conversations through the year, we we really saw this narrative around uh, in the media around the, the differences between the generations. And um, and so this was the idea behind it, the generation gap, that there is this, uh, this gap widening between all the generations. And... Um, but when we sort of go a little bit deeper, what we really understand is that actually we're, there's a lot more similarities between us. And that's a really, um, you know, important observation that, you know, um, that lamb can play to. It's the, it's the great protein that brings everybody together. So, um, you know, what better, what better thing this year to do than bring the generations together over uh, a lamb barbecue? The ads every year, there's always a good amount of satire in them as well. We can all have a good laugh at ourselves. Generally, though, what are the aim of these ads, though, that you bring out every year? The aim is actually to uh, ensure we, we, we sell more lamb for, for producers. That's, our, that's the number one goal. So we, we take that very seriously and, and track that right through the campaign. And what we see from this campaign is, you know, and normally we see, a, you know, in the last, well, the last few years, we've seen an, an uptick in, in volume. Um, you know, usually between 15 to 20 percent um, on a on a regular week uh, through the campaign period. So we definitely want to see that. Um, you know, on the and we've worked out this really great model where providing the uh, you know a really entertaining ad, getting people to watch it, and then uh, you know working um, you know with all the the customers of Red Meat. Um, to make sure there's things like, you know, red meat on menu when it's in store and it's available. How much does this campaign cost to run? Uh, well, you know, what I can say is this is the, this is the number one activity for lamb uh, this year. Um, you know, it's not small change, but as I said, it sort of pays itself uh, off in the, in the first, usually in about the first two weeks of the, of the campaign. Keep an eye out for that ad. And that's all we have time for on the Country Hour today. Make sure you join me again tomorrow uh, at midday at midday for more Country Hour and Rural Stories. The Jack Jumpers are surging into 2024. Selected home games, basket-by-basket basket action with myself, Chris Rowbottom, and NBL 300 gamer Mark Nash for ABC Sport and ABC Radio Hobart.